Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1, our fifth week in Luke chapter 1 and the last for now. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black hardbound Bible uh, in one of the pews around you, and the text we'll read from Luke chapter 1 is on page 856, 856. Uh, This Wednesday night, we don't have our regular Wednesday night activities, but our growth groups are going to be going and uh, singing Christmas carols and sharing communion with those who are shut in and and not able to come to us. So our growth groups are already going, but if you'd like to participate in that, come Wednesday night. Um, I think we're leaving at the same time, right? Seven o'clock? Nobody's contradicting me, so that's it. Seven o'clock it is. We may get together, come a few minutes before that so we can head out uh, right on time. If that changes, we'll send out an email, or if I'm wrong, it's not in the bulletin, so uh, I'm just giving edicts from up here. It shall be at seven o'clock that thou shalt go and sing songs and take communion. Uh, The other thing I would just remind you of is next Sunday we do have our regular morning service. Uh, But we will also have our traditional Christmas Eve service. It'll be at 5 o'clock next Sunday evening. We will sing together. We will hear the story. In fact, the very text we're going to look at next Sunday morning, we will hear that again Sunday evening as part of our service and, uh, and, and hear from God's Word. We will hear the gospel. And, and one of the things I will tell you is that in the kindness of God, there is still an impulse in so many people that says Christmas is a good time to be in church. And so if you have friends or those you've been sharing the gospel with uh, that are like that, invite them to come. This is a time that is good for folks to come, and actually plenty of uh, folks we never see any other time of the year come on Christmas Eve for that very reason. So I encourage you to, to come, and I encourage you to bring someone along with you. Now, next week, we're actually, as I said, we'll look at the birth of Jesus, but this week, the birth of John, his forerunner, who prepares the way for Christ. And we'll read Luke 1, verses 57 to 80. Luke chapter 1, verse 57 to the end of the chapter. This is what the Spirit says to us. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, 
Blessed be the God, Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray, Father. Father, we... uh, We are in awe of you. You are a God who speaks. And then does what he says. And Father, we come to your word because in it you have spoken in order to teach us, in order to correct us, in order to rebuke us, in order to train us in righteousness, that we might be equipped as your people for every good work. Oh God, give us ears to listen, to hear your truth. Give us hearts to receive it, not as merely the words of a man, but as the word of God. to have our thinking and our speaking and our living shaped by what we hear. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you and are among us. By your Spirit, would you work in them. And by your Spirit, would you speak to them and create a new heart in them. And for all who know you, would you create in us a clean heart, a refreshed heart, a renewed heart? Would you stir up fresh love for Jesus Christ? Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The world of uh, sports is full of predictions. If you were to watch uh, the pre-game shows even today before uh, NFL games get underway, part of what you will see is predictions. Who will win what and even what the score will be. But there are some marvelous and uh, quite frankly amazing predictions in the history of sports. In, in 1994, the, the New York Rangers 
were facing elimination in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and Mark Messier said words that landed on the front cover of the New York Post the day of the game. We'll win tonight. But he didn't just say it. He went out and he scored three goals to make it happen. Game three of the World Series in 1932, Babe Ruth steps to the plate and points to center field, predicting his own home run and then hitting it. January 1969, a Baltimore Colt fan heckles Joe Namath before Super Bowl III. And Joe replies, we're going to win the game. I guarantee it. And they did. Now, for the three stories that I told you of predictions that came true, I could probably tell you 3,000 that did not. Isn't that right? But we hear those things, and they're amazing, aren't they? It's amazing not simply when someone predicts that something's going to happen, but then they make it happen. Could you imagine the next time that one of those three men made a prediction in the locker room? Might be a little more inclined (laughs) to think, he can actually do that. To trust him. Even though they know every prediction doesn't come true. No one gets it right all the time. Extraordinary moments are the exception, not the rule. Except when it comes to God. With God, the extraordinary is the rule, not the exception. Making promises and keeping them is the rule, and there are no exceptions. And in the verses we've read, the reality that God keeps His promises stirs responses of faith in those who are there, and really it should do the same for us, so that as we finish looking at this, we should respond in faith to the God who keeps His promises. We should respond in faith to the God who keeps His promises. And I want to point out three expressions of faith that we find in this text. The first is obedient faith, obedient faith, and it is in Zechariah. Now, as the verses open, they tell us of the day of John's birth. I mean, the day of a child's birth is an exciting day. It's a busy day. It's a day you don't forget. And that day has come for Zechariah and Elizabeth. It was a day that was promised by the angel Gabriel, who said not only would he be born, but many will rejoice at his birth. And then it doesn't take long. Verse 58, here they come. Neighbors, relatives, maybe in their hands are loaves of bread and bunt cakes and casseroles. I mean, after all, he is John the Baptist, so there had to be casseroles. (laughs) But here they come, and they've come to rejoice with them. Verse 58 says, they had heard, heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy Mercy, she had been barren, and God has shown her mercy. 
But when Gabriel came, you'll remember that Zechariah didn't believe that this day would ever come. He didn't believe that this would happen. And because of his unbelief, he's not been able to speak for nine months. And now he holds his son, the evidence that he was wrong, the evidence that God keeps his word. God's kept his promise. God's shown his faithfulness. And where Zechariah had responded in unbelief, he now responds in faith, and that faith is expressed in his obedience. Okay, so the day comes when they are going to name the child. For a long time, it had been just like it is today, which is that children were named at birth. But it had become a newer practice that on the day of circumcision, that's when the name would be given. And so... The name is going to be given, and everyone thinks, hey, name him after Zechariah. This would be great. And Elizabeth says no. And John says no. And, actually, and, and Zechariah says no. And actually, the way that they say no in the Greek language is quite emphatic. It's as if, uh, really, in our minds, there should be an exclamation point after the no that Elizabeth says, no. His name will be John. And actually, the way that Zechariah scribbles on his pad, it says, John is his name. This is a radically different response for Zechariah. And they're that emphatic because that's what the angel Gabriel had said in verse 13. His, you shall call him John. And now, Zechariah has been pummeled daily, right? As the baby bump grows, as the day of birth comes, every day he is reminded of his unbelief. Every day he is reminded of how he would not listen to God's Word. And now he, has the, he is given the opportunity to express something differently, not with his voice, but with his handwriting. And he does it. He expresses his faith by writing, John is his name. Those words on that tablet are an act of obedience, obeying the angel, obeying the words of God. Now, friends, the Bible is clear that our faith in God is seen in obedience. Faith in God produces obedience in life. Consider Abraham. Remember Genesis 22? God tests him and says, take your son, your only son Isaac, up to the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham sets out to obey the Lord. And he gets up there, and they've got the wood, and he binds his son, and he raises the knife. And God intervenes and saves him and says this, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son from me. Obedience testified to his faith. James 2 clearly says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Dear friends, do not fall for the lie that expressing faith is merely a verbal action. Expressing faith is not merely done in words. It is not merely done in feelings. 
It is done in all of life. Expressing faith is something we will do for the rest of our lives as our words conform to what God says, as our thoughts conform to what God says, as our desires conform to what God says, as our actions conform to what God says, then our faith becomes more and more clear. Not because we can act in order to produce faith, but because when we believe, it produces certain acts. Faith without works is dead, as the body without the Spirit, is dead. And Zechariah's faith is now seen to be living. God tells him his, na- his son's name will be John, so he writes, John is his name. Now this, in addition to this obedience being an expression of faith, it also expresses his repentance, doesn't it? He had already been walking in unbelief. And actually, repentance is the flip side of the coin of faith. We walk in repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, they are bound together. They don't come separately. Like, I'm going to repent for a while, and then I'm going to believe for a while. Or I'm just going to believe, and I'm never going to repent. The two come together, all right? It's like beans and cornbread. How can you really have one without the other? Look, that's the first Jim Chambers amen I don't even, I don't know when, Jim. But if that's what you're having for lunch, tell me afterwards, all right? But faith and repentance come together. Faith in God always means leaving something else. Because our faith is in something, typically ourselves. We believe we're good enough. We are believe. We believe we've done enough. We, we believe that we don't need a Savior. We believe that we're not that bad. And we have to vacate those beliefs, repent of them, in order to actually trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Zechariah repents. He recognizes he was wrong. His unbelief was wrong. So upon his repentance, what happens? The hand that had shut his mouth now opens it, and he blesses God. So in response to God keeping his promises, we see obedient faith. Secondly, we see reverent faith. Reverent faith, and we see this in the crowd. Look how they respond when John first writes his little sentence in uh, verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John, or as I said in Greek, it says, John is his name. And the next thing, they all wonder. They can't hardly believe it. Apparently, he hadn't been around, or they assumed he was deaf, because, you know, they're making signs at him. But, uh, and some people think he was deaf, but I'm going to let you settle that at lunch, all right? But here's the thing, is that Elizabeth said his name's going to be John. Zechariah has now said he's going to be, his name is going to be John. And they are all filled with wonder. But then the wonder only increases. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. They are in awe of what has just happened. Babies being born 
That's a normal thing. Babies being born to women who were once barren, that is not. But they've heard stories about that. But they've never been in the room when the guy who couldn't talk can now talk. This is the point at which fear came over all of them. Is when he's healed of this. Can you imagine? I don't know what, I wonder what that was like for Zechariah. Like, could he tell that something was different in his throat? I have no idea. But all of a sudden he speaks. Can you imagine being in that room at that moment? Some people are like, whoa, what just happened? What just came out of Zechariah's mouth? But everybody is surprised. It may even be that upon hearing her husband's faith for the, her husband's voice for the first time in nine months, Elizabeth sheds a little tear. He can speak. Everyone's filled with awe. Fear came on them. Now that doesn't mean that they're afraid of Zechariah. It's not a kind of fear of pain or fear of some kind of destruction. It's not a kind of fear of power used against them. This is the fear of reverence. This is the fear that recognizes that God is at work, that the God who created all things, who spoke all things into existence, who split the Red Sea, who held the sun in the sky so Joshua could win a battle, who won so many battles against enemies for Israel, that same God is at work in this room. That's what has them rocking back on their heels. This is the kind of stuff they learned in Sunday school as they rehearsed the stories of the Old Testament, but here it is. This same God is right here enabling vocal cords to vibrate that could not vibrate just moments ago. It's an awesome event that they're witnessing. Friends, the work of God in the lives of men and women, in our own lives, must never grow ordinary. When God answers our prayers, heals a disease, saves a friend, provides for our needs, we should tremble knowing that the power of God is at work knowing that the God who oversees the entire universe has taken notice of little old me and He has done this for me. He has helped me. He has shown me mercy. He has strengthened me. He has provided in a way I could never imagine. And just like Zechariah's mouth is open, so are the mouths of these neighbors. Can keep going in verse 65. All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. When the men went to the local hardware store, they're talking about Elizabeth and Zechariah and this whole business of silent Zechariah and, and barren Betty now have a baby and he can speak. And when ladies are getting together for coffee or talking down at the river as they're doing their wash, they're talking about what's happened with Zechariah. They can't stop talking about it. It's completely amazed them. 
I mean, I don't think we ought to walk around necessarily in a state of ecstasy, but as the fact that the God of the universe has saved you, grown to such a place where you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And we forget exactly what that sentence means. What it means that, that we belong to God in Jesus Christ. We've forgotten what it means for God to have saved us where we were, where we were headed, how we were opposed to Him completely. And He wooed us by His Spirit, and He, and he loved, He set His love on us. We were the most miserable creatures on the planet, and He set His love on us. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that I've got morals. Oh, friends. Oh, friends. Even when you talk to others about morality in society or whatever it is that we're talking about, we must never forget that coming from a Christian perspective is not coming from a perspective that somehow we figured out because we are so stinking smart. We must realize that we were completely in the dark about the truth until God flipped on the lights. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. They can't stop talking about it. They can't stop thinking about it. Verse 66, all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. They tuck this news away in their hearts. It fills their thoughts day by day. Look at God. God, God made a promise and He kept it. He gave them a son. He opened Zechariah's mouth. If God did all that, His hand must be on this boy for a reason. What can this child be? Not who can this child be. What is he? What is his place? What is his role? What does God have designed for him to do? This reverent faith in response to God keeping his promises. And then thirdly, we see a singing faith. Uh, we see Zechariah's prophecy, his song, often called the Benedictus because that's the first word of the song in Latin, just like the Magnificat. Magnificat is the first Latin word in that translation of Mary's song. But it's a benediction. It's a song of praise. And it begins the same way that, that several letters in the New Testament do. Blessed be. That's the language of Peter. That's the language of Paul. When he says blessed, he doesn't mean to bestow blessing. This is, this is a blessing that, this, is, this word blessing in Greek is where we get our word eulogy from. It means good words. Zechariah is setting out to speak good words about God, to lift Him up, to praise Him. 
and he tells us why he's singing from beginning to end. It's because of God's salvation, a salvation that we know will come through Jesus Christ, a salvation that fulfills his promises in the Old Testament, a salvation that is greater than anything that has come before and anything that we might imagine. And he indicates, actually, the things that it's greater than. It's first greater than the Exodus. In the Old Testament, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Now, if you're not familiar with your Bible, that's why, that's why I mention that. And we call that event the Exodus. And some of the language used in that event is used here, like in verse 68. He has visited and redeemed his people. Now, that language is actually used in the book of Exodus because God visited the children of Israel in Egypt. And it doesn't mean that he, he stopped by for a cup of coffee and did some small talk for half an hour and then he left. To visit means he came by in order to see their affliction, to see their oppression, to examine it fully in all all of its manners, all of its ways, all of the reach of the Egyptian oppression. And then it says he redeemed them. Do you remember how? He sent plagues. He provided a sacrificial lamb in order to redeem his people, to rescue them and bring them out and make them his people. There's more language, uh, more uh, Exodus language in verses 71 and 72. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy for promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. To save us from our enemies, that's exactly what God did in the Exodus. Save them from the Egyptians. Why? Because of his holy covenant. He remembers it. Now, when it says that God remembers his covenant, it doesn't mean that it had slipped his mind for a long time. It means God had placed, if it were, as it were, that piece of paper in his desk drawer, and he knew exactly when he was going to take it out. And when it was time to take it out, he remembered. He pulls out the covenant and says, now is the time. And he's going to act. It's not because he forgot. He remembers to bring it up so that he will act. As a as a way of saying, actually, I'm about to do something. And then in verses 74 and 75, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Do you remember what Moses was supposed to tell Pharaoh when he went to him? Let my people go that they might serve the Lord in the wilderness. And after... After they are rescued and they are in the land, some of the last words that Joshua says to them are this, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. In other words, serve the Lord in holiness and in righteousness. You belong to him. Serve him only. Serve him fully. That's why he saved you. Now, all of this Exodus language is wonderful, but the salvation that Zechariah's song points to is actually greater than that. Jesus came and visited us in our time of need. 
a greater need than Egyptian slavery. Now, that may take some people a while to get through their heads. There is a greater need than freedom from genuine oppression in this world. There is a greater need for both the oppressor and the oppressed than just freedom from oppression in this world. And Jesus came to give. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to meet the need that is greater than any oppression anyone will ever face on this earth. Just as God was said to redeem His people from that oppression, the greater oppression of sin that is on us, Jesus redeems us from it so that Ephesians 1 says, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It does not mean, friends, because some of us are very ready to shake our heads very vigorously at that and nod up and down, and yes, there's a much greater oppression. It does not mean that we do not care about genuine oppression. It does not mean that we do not care about injustice that happens in this world. It does not mean that we do not care Everybody got that? But it does mean that there is an ultimate. If we eliminated all horizontal injustice and all horizontal oppression and all horizontal poverty and all horizontal problems, the world would still go to hell in a handbasket because none of that is what is keeping us out of heaven. In itself, these horizontal problems. Eliminating those doesn't clear the path to heaven. It is our rebellion against God, it is our sin against Him, it is our refusal to submit to Him. That is the great problem. Jesus visits in that greater need. Jesus saves us from our enemies. We should not be hesitant to say that. He does save us from spiritual enemies, right? Sin, death, the, He's going to save us from the world and the flesh and the devil, all those things. But the, matter, the fact of the matter is, is that He will save us from physical enemies as well. I don't mean He'll just protect us from all enemies and nobody will be able to harm us. What I mean is in the end, there will be no one left to oppress, to persecute, to oppose. Because they either will have been saved by the blood of Jesus and joining us in joy in heaven, or they will face punishment. This is part of what Paul says to the Thessalonians. God will punish those who afflict you. We don't jump up and down and scream, but what do we do? We entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. We trust that God is going to take care of all of our enemies. And because He has given up His Son for us, how will He not also with Him give us all things, including saving us from enemies? And then Jesus saves us to serve God, doesn't he? That's what this says. 
to be God's holy people, to live righteous lives, that we might honor him, that we might serve his purposes. Now, admittedly, some of you, if you go back to Joshua 24 this afternoon and you're looking at it, you'll see, well, well now wait a second. Joshua says, fear God and serve him. And here it says we're going to serve without fear. So which one is it? Well, if you look at what it says here, it says, we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. In other words, the fear that we're delivered from is not fear of God, it is fear of enemies. We have nothing to fear as we serve God. Don't fear the one who can kill the body but can't touch the soul. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul and cast them into hell. When we, in, in those times, friends, when we fear God, we truly fear nothing else. So the salvation that God has promised is greater than the Exodus. It's greater than John's ministry. Now, he does sing about John's ministry, and a wonderful ministry it is. In verses uh, 76 forward, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is what Gabriel had said to Zechariah. He will come in the spirit of Elijah, which is exactly what the Old Testament prophet Malachi had said in Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So this little baby that he, I mean, he says, and you, child. I mean, it's like he's singing with John in his arms, isn't it? I don't know that he's calling across the house, and you, child. I think it's probably more, I mean, this is my imagination. But, so you don't have to believe it, but I just, I just think John must be nearby. And you will be the prophet. He's going to be a preacher. He's going to preach repentance. He's going to preach forgiveness. He's going to preach the arrival of God's salvation. So look, verse 78, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Just on Friday morning, I was driving our two youngest kids to school. And, uh, you know, it feels earlier when it gets darker, but on the eastern horizon, there was a glow. The sun wasn't up, but there was a glow. And the glow was there as if to say, the sun is coming. The sun is coming. And all of John's life is like that glow on the eastern horizon. To say, the sunrise is coming. The light will dawn in the darkness. The light of the world has arrived, and he's got forgiveness in his hand. I mean, it's an incredible role that John has, isn't it? And yet Jesus is greater than John. And you know what? John would have it no other way. When he, when, when he grows up, uh, people start asking about him. And in John 1, verse 20, he confessed and, they, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Only Jesus brings God's light into the world. Only Jesus' death can save 
rebellious humanity. Only Jesus can reconcile us to God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Only Jesus can bring peace by the blood of His cross, Colossians 1.20. This is why Jesus came, after all, you know, is to save, to forgive. John 3 says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John can point to the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And just as an aside, John's ministry is really our ministry as well, isn't it? I am not the Christ. Look to Jesus. Who do you think you are saying this and that and the other about sin and about holiness and about judgment? Well, I am not the Christ. Let's just look at Jesus. Let's look at what he says. Who do you think you are telling me how to live my life? I, I couldn't possibly tell you how to live your life. I'm not the Christ. But let's look to Jesus. That's our role, isn't it? Even when we come alongside one another to counsel one another in the problems of life, we don't come along as, we don't come with a cape. You understand, right? Because we're the one that's going to rescue our friend from all of this. No, we come along to say, let's look to Jesus together. Let's look what he says about suffering. Let's look what he says about pain. Let's look at what he says about being stabbed in the back by your friends. Let's look at what he says about being sacrificial. Let's, let's look at what he says about these things. I'm not the Christ. Let's look to him. The last thing, God's salvation in Jesus is greater than our condemnation. Now, look at verse 69. We have this imagery here that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. A horn of salvation. That is not like in you know, the movies when it's a battle scene and someone blows a horn. That is not, he's not, it's not, a, it's not a picture of announcing. It's actually a picture of power, of strength. The horns of an ox, the horns of a bull are pictures of its strength. Dear friends, you may sneak into that field and tip a cow, but you would be wise never to sneak into a field in order to try to tip a bull. Why? Because of the horns. And so here it just doesn't say that God redeems them. He's raised up a powerful salvation, something that is more powerful than anything else. The sin that condemns us? The horn of salvation has power to deal with it. Jesus Christ is our horn of salvation. He is the one who is stronger than anything that condemns us in a world that condemns us. I mean, condemnation is so powerful in this world, isn't it? People get on TikTok and other places just to talk about their whole, all their sense of 
awfulness and all these things and how the real solution, the real power is to start thinking differently about me, about talking about how great I am, I'm powerful. That's why, that's why our society wants to embolden people to express what they think their identity is in any manner they please. Why? Because this is the real solution to the things that are plaguing this poor girl's soul is that she needs more testosterone in her life. She needs hormone blockers. She needs surgery. She needs all these things. These are the things that are going to actually fix the problem. And even if we only knew what the Bible said before this, the scientific evidence, the evidence of the studies since then is the misery that what is looked at as a solution is actually causing greater problems. And that's not just true here. That's true everywhere. Anytime you look somewhere other than the Lord to solve your problem, do not be surprised. Even if there is a moment of peace, this moment that seems, oh, oh, things are all right, because sin has its pleasure for a season, you understand. Don't be surprised when down the road things are actually worse than when you started out. Because you wouldn't listen to the Lord. The only horn that will save us is the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin condemns us, it, can, it ruins friendships, it ruins families, it ruins marriages, it ruins finances, it ruins churches, it ruins countries, it ruins careers. And quite frankly, the sin that condemns us is more powerful than we are, but it is not more powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the horn of salvation. His arms reach wider than we can wander and deeper than we can bury ourselves in sin. And he is from the house of his servant David, meaning he's not just a warrior. He's not just this mighty warrior. He is actually a king. He doesn't just have the strength to save. He has the authority to do it. He has the authority to bring us into his kingdom. He is a benevolent king whose salvation is greater than any condemnation we will ever face. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, what a song this is. This is a homework assignment. One of you just set this thing to music, will you? Just do it. It's a glorious song. He, Zechariah sees the promises of God being fulfilled in his day, and his faith bursts into song. And here we sit, brothers and sisters, here we sit. We don't just see God's promises being fulfilled. We see that they have been fulfilled. Jesus Christ has come and he teaches and he heals and he dies for us and he's buried and he conquers death through his resurrection and he gives us eternal life and we mumble our songs. And we just prefer to listen to other people because I don't actually have a nice voice. Oh, dear friend. Let me just tell you, when you're surrounded by 105,000 people in Neyland Stadium in Knoxville, Tennessee, and the volunteers score, 
Nobody cares whether they have a good voice. They all wish that they were down on Rocky Top. And they sing it because something has gripped them. We don't need a football atmosphere. But what we do need is the realization that God has kept his promise for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time that we together open our mouths to sing to him, that is part of what should fuel the fire of the song that comes out my mouth. That just like Zechariah, what we need is for the Lord to open our mouths and loosen our tongues so we can bless God. God's kept his promise, friends. Not only to send John, but to send Jesus. To give us a salvation that's greater than the Exodus and greater than John's ministry and, 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 and greater than our condemnation and, quite frankly, greater than anything else you can list there. And knowing that, we should respond with faith. As God's people, our faith should be stirred, our faith should be strengthened, our faith should persevere. And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Responding in faith is the only right way to respond to what God has done in Jesus. To respond in a faith that produces obedience where there once was rebellion. To respond in reverence where there was once mockery for God. To respond with singing where there was once slander. To respond with faith to God for His Word, for for his people, for, for his son, for his salvation, for all that he has done. How will you respond? How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words, for this text, for your love for us. We are so thankful that we can rely on you, that we can trust you because you keep your promises. And God, every time we see it, would you help us respond in faith? Respond with greater faith that when you say something, you will do it. That as we see your promises in the past fulfilled, that we will have greater faith in the promises that are still being fulfilled in our lives and in the future. We cry out with that Father in the Gospels. We believe. Help our unbelief. So please do it, Lord. Apply your word to our hearts for your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.